So we're in a really unique time in our life as a church. I've been talking about this really over the past couple of weeks. I mean, we are actually now, we are, this is actually the first week of our first kind of completed year. This is the first day of our new year as a life as a church. We've been in existence for one whole year, and God has really done some tremendous things in our community over that time. And, and this small space is kind of a, a picture of God's faithfulness, and we're coming up on a really unique time because... You know, we have kind of decided that we were going to step out in faith and trust that God was calling us uh, to become a permanent part of this neighborhood. We want to love our neighborhood really well. And so as we think about this upcoming year, this next year in our life, this space for us is a launching place for us to really begin to do that well. And we're in that time of year where we begin to talk about Advent and the church begins to talk about stewardship. And stewardship is a really kind of a fancy way the church masks saying we need you to give your money. And so we talk about stewardship because it makes us feel a bit more like we're doing something you know, that we, we should be doing. But really what we're saying is in order for all this to happen, for the church to exist as a church, for us to go and love our neighbors well and, and be involved in mission and engage in worship and all those things, it takes the whole of our bodies saying we're going to be involved. And not just financially. It's really easy for me to stand up here and say, okay, well, we want you to pledge. We want you to give your money and support us financially. But I'm really not concerned with that. And here's why. What we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks is we talk about this idea of, of going all in. Is that I want this church, the people that are involved in this church, to consider going all in with their lives this next year. And that means different things for all of us. And so instead of preaching four little nice sermons on why you should give us your money and why the church needs your dollars, what I thought I'd do is just keep preaching through Philippians. We've kind of been working through that over the past five weeks. Preaching through Philippians, putting the gospel out there in our face, and letting you all come up and tell each other why God has called you to go all in. Because I truly believe that if, if you give your life into the body of Christ and you say, God, I, I'm going all in, I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm going to get involved, I'm going to get engaged, I'm going to put my heart out there, our resources and our things will follow. I'm so not worried about that. God has been so faithful to us. So what we've done is each week we've had someone come up and share a little testimony or a little story about why God has called them and their family to kind of go all in. First week we heard from Rob Vera as he talked about living outside of his comfort and, and what God has called him to going to Guatemala and being a part of our mission experience and how that's changed his perspective about the church. Last week we heard from Kathy Cross who talked about her kind of life change experience with the gospel and how she had a heartbeat for now studying the Bible and teaching the Bible and how that changed her perspective of church and her challenge for us to go all in. And this week uh, we're going to hear from Tom Portman and Tom has actually bailed me out pretty kind of uh, substantially, because the, the people that I had lined up, my lined up and then my backup lined up, all backed out yesterday. Uh, I got, they got complicated, got stuck out of town. And so I called Tom, associate pastor here, as everyone likes to <laughs> joke with him about. And I said, uh, also known as our, our treasurer, uh, kind of our treasurer, our te financial team, I said, Tom, I want you to, to talk about this, because Tom's experience is, is one that I, I really believe kind of captures a lot of what, what I'm talking about. People that are willing to just say, look, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm risking for the gospel, but I'm going to go, God, you have all of me. And so I'm going to invite Tom to come share his story a little bit with you as we talk about going all in together. Morning. How's everybody this morning? Trev asked me to talk about being all in. And honestly, I didn't really know what, what that meant as he's as he's presenting that to, to challenge us to be all in in the church. Well, I wanted to, so I, I began thinking about that and, and thought, well, who's been an example 
to me of being all in. So I wanted to share a little bit of story of my story, my experiences over the last couple of years about what I've seen being all in. Um, a couple of years ago, we took a vacation and went to Italy and did all the touristy things for two weeks. Saw the cathedrals and saw St. Saint Peter's, the, went to the Vatican. And one of the things that I wanted to do specifically was to see the catacombs that were outside of Rome. These are basically big caves that the, the first century Christians, first century followers, the places they worship, they hid out to worship. That was a pretty profound experience to see where these people had to hide from the authorities to be able to, to worship. So they were an example of people being all in with, with their life and putting their life at risk. Several months later, we were asked to read a book titled Radical. Part of, the, part of that book has a challenge to the readers to spend significant time in a, in a different context or live in a different context and had no idea what that meant. So um, I continue reading. And about that same time, the opportunity and the uh, promotion of the mission trip to China came up. I thought, well, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Um, without talking to Ruth Ann, without any other consultation, after that Sunday where Treb was promoting that trip, she said, you need to go. So with that challenge from the book, with the challenge from Ruth Ann, I thought, well, okay, I'm in. I'm going to go. One of the very first nights while we were there, uh, I went to a house church. And this was, we, we met some missionaries, talking about people being all in, um, Will and Amanda had moved to China to uh, spread the gospel to college students. So we met with these college students. First, first night we were there, we were all blurry-eyed from a long trip. And I met a young man, young, I think he was about 21, college student named David. Uh, don't know what his, what his real name is because it's in Chinese, so I can't remember. Uh, but we call him David. And after, the, after this house church um, experience, we're walking down this, downstairs, and I asked him if he was a believer. He was asking me, are you a believer? What do you believe in? And, and uh, so I turned the question back on him, and I said, are you a believer? And he said, no, not yet. Didn't really know what to do with that and didn't really follow up on that until the next day with Will and Amanda. I said, what did, what did he mean, no, not yet? Well, it takes a lot for these these young folks to commit to being a believer because they are a first-generation believers because they didn't grow up with being a follower of Christ, even hearing the word, don't know what God is, don't know who Jesus is, never seen the Bible. And for them to commit their entire lives, they may be giving up their family, they may be giving up their friends, they may be giving up their education. These people were all in. Um, so to connect seeing the catacombs of the first century Christians and then see a real-life set of first-generation believers uh, had a profound impact on me. And I think most of my family saw that in me. Uh, and so when, we came, when I came back and continued to talk about it, Ruth Ann was uh, really interested in going to Guatemala. And so we went on the Guatemala trip then several months later and took our two daughters with us. Uh, again, a couple living down there that we got to meet who are missionaries that have, um, Brandon and, and Jenny, have moved their three young 
kids down there to live in Guatemala and teach the gospel every day and, and just that becoming part of their lives. That's all in. Um, so with, with that in mind, uh, I thought, uh, you know, being all in seems pretty intimidating uh, to, to do that. But I would uh, challenge everybody here to take a, take a step and engage in something with the church, whether it's a mission trip or a Bible study or a small group or whatever it is, and you will be surprised where those experiences take you. Uh, it's, it's quite a ride. So uh, the challenge to everybody is to go all in. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Bro. <clears throat> I got that. And, and the, the call extends. I mean, God, Tom, it's such, a, it's such a great picture that you painted of our experience in China. And for a lot of us, that seems such a kind of a, a world away. But the, the call is, extends right here for, for really for me and, and what it means to be part of this church. Paul's words to the church in Ephesus that were kind of echoed up here, one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, that comes out of Ephesians 5. He's challenging the church to say, look, we are all in this thing together. We may come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different kind of histories and things, but we're, we're in this thing, this Christ-following thing together. And I think one of the things that Tom and a lot of us realized on the trip to China was that here we are standing with believers that are huddled together in other apartments, and the one thing that we have in common, the only thing we have in common is Christ. And the idea that these folks had given their whole life to that, and my Christian, my Christian life has cost me nothing. I mean, nothing. is profound. The challenge for the church this year is to think about going all in. One of the ways that we do that is through the way that we give of our resources. Next week is our, our time we're going to gather together and return our pledge cards as part of our offering of worship. So my, my challenge is for you to think about all in, but not think about it just in terms of money, but use this as an outlet for some of that. To say, okay, so I'm going to take this home, my wife and I, or my husband and I, or just me, I'm going to sit over, I'm going to pray over, and I'm going to say, God, what does this mean for me? Because I'm not just talking about going, okay, I'm going to give a little more this year. That's not really, but what does it mean for me to engage this church? We don't want you to be here and show up on Christmas and Easter. I mean, if you do, that's fine. But what we want is you to say, okay, God, I'm going to be a little vulnerable. I want to risk. I want to get involved in a different way. I want to, I want to start something. I want to be involved in a life group. I want to give my heart away. I want to, whatever it takes to say, God, this is what that means. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that today when we talk about obedience. But take this home with you. They're in the pews. There are the pews. These fancy plastic $12 chairs around you. And... Um, Take this home with you, all right? And uh, I'm kidding. They were 19. So take it. They're 19. So take this home with you and bring it back next week. If you go to our website, just click on that picture when this comes up and you can download it that way too. Um, but bring this back with you next week. We'll have some here as well if you forget. So uh, trust me, we'll have plenty. So um, bring that back with you. We're going to make it an expression of our worship. Okay. Moving on, we are in the middle of the book of Philippians, and I told you I was going to stay there, and uh, so we're going to keep doing that, and I promised you a few weeks ago that we weren't going to do the whole big background, this is how we got there, this is what we're doing, so we're just going to dive right in. If you've missed the first few weeks, the first five weeks of our study, and you're interested in the background, the history of the book of Philippians, and what Paul's doing, you can get all that stuff online. So uh, we post all this stuff, so if you miss a Sunday, you can go catch up, you can subscribe to the podcast, you can do all that, so... Go listen to it if you're kind of a little bit behind maybe in thinking about the history of the book of Philippians. But we're going to be the book of Philippians chapter 2 as we're kind of taking a little three-week picture, last week, this week, and next week, um, with a common theme, a common kind of spread. And let me give you what that is. So Paul has shifted gears coming out of chapter 1 where he talked about perspective and living with an eternal perspective and how that should alter the way that we think about living our lives, seeing things through the eyes of Christ, seeing the bigger picture 
uh, of how God sees the world and how that should change the way that we see. He's sort of shifting a little bit, keeping that perspective backdrop, but he's going to begin to move into this idea of obedience. And, and I told you last week that these three weeks, last week, this week, and the next week, are all kind of framed for me in one common theme, and here it is. We all want God to show us new things. We all want new revelation from God. However, none of us really want to live the truth that God has already showed us. So what that means is that we're all looking for God to give us the next thing. God, show me something new. Reveal something new to me. Give me something new. You know, reveal this to me. But nobody really wants to live the truth that we already know. But hear me say this. Your growth and maturity in Christ, your growth and maturity as a follower of Christ is directly connected to your ability to practice and live what God has already showed you. The reason we don't want to practice that truth is because it's complicated and hard. It's the reason we ignore it and we ask God for new things. But God is in the habit of showing us simple truth and then calling us to live them out, and it's called obedience. So before we throw our hands up and say, God, show me something new, we've got to be willing to walk in and practice what God has already showed us. And if you're real honest with yourself and you look in your heart, you know that there are things, truths, that God has revealed to you, that he's telling you about your life, that he's calling you to, that you don't want to live. Your growth and maturity in Christ is directly connected to your practicing truth that God has already revealed to you. So let's stop pushing for the next thing and start living into what God has shown us. What Paul is going to do and did last week and is going to do today and the next week is he's not going to drop some brand new huge piece of theology and change everybody's world. He's basically going to lift up some simple truth that he has already told the Philippians about and even echoed through some of his own letters as truth that need to be lived and recalled for the Philippians. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to chapter 2. We're right in the middle of it, verse 5, um, uh, 5 through 11. We did the first four verses last week, and, uh, and we did, we're going to do these verses this week and the next. All under that same banner of, we've got to learn to practice what God has already revealed to us. So before we open the, that up and, and uh, dive into it, let's pray. God, I thank you for stories like Tom's and Kathy's and Rob's and how countless more of those stories there are where we haven't done this perfectly and we haven't done it right. But God, we've on some small level in our lives decided to say, God, you can put me in uncomfortable places because I want to be used by you. And Lord, I pray that as I think about this church um, and I think about our mission to, to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one and to the city and the world, as I think about that mission God, it's going to take all of us saying, God, everything we have is yours. Our resources, our life, our time, our energy, our heartbeat to see our mission move through this city, through this world. So God, as we open the book of Philippians today and we talk about obedience and and humility and unity and perspective and some of those words, I pray that you would challenge our hearts to just do some simple redefining, Lord, so that we can live truth that you've already showed us. Take a moment and just pray in your own heart. Invite God to to move in you. Um, Invite him to stir your heart this morning. And pray for someone beside you or behind you or someone around you. Just pray for him. Pray for somebody else. As I say every single week, be in the habit of praying for other people. Even if you think that's just a little weird, just pray for him. Just ask that God would do something in them. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We pray that you would 
Convict us with your truth where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Equip us where we need to be equipped. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I dive into it, verse 5 through 11, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 are a really interesting piece of text. Um, they come on the heels of 1 through 4, which is a call to unity, which I'll get back into in a minute. And they sort of are held together by this central verse in verse 5. And before we read it, let me tell you just a little bit about it. Because if you just glance in your Bible, you'll see that those verses are offset a little bit. They're kind of a different little paragraph. And when your translators did that, they were kind of making note that, hey, these are verses we need to pay attention to because there's something a little bit different about them. And most scholars believe that these verses, 5 or really 6 through 11, are, are a version of an old hymn or some old piece of poetry. Now, no one really knows uh, but we think, or I say we as in scholars, real smart people think, and I sort of jump on the back of, that these are an old hymn that was used in worship. What we know for sure is that Paul uses it as, as really two things. He uses it as a declaration of who Christ is, all right? And he uses it as a call to worship, which we're going to be unpacking. And typically, in, in a lot of scholarly circles, this section of text is known as the mind of Christ. And it's got two big movements. It's got the, the hu, kind of the, the humiliation, which is what they call the movement of that God became man and uh, took on the very nature of a servant, that whole kind of humiliation. God doesn't put aside his deity, but he puts aside his heavenly status and through the incarnation becomes man, all right? So both fully God, but yet fully man. So this sort of humiliation of putting aside the heavenly status and coming to serve and die for humanity. And then the exaltation, which is sort of the God redeeming Christ for his ultimate glory, giving him the name that is above every name, as we're going to see in a moment. So it's a, it's a really interesting piece of text, and I wrestled a lot with how to teach through it because it demands really two things. It first demands to take some time and really teach through it on a word-by-word kind of um, theological picture because it, it has so much Christological theology or the humanity and deity of Christ wrapped up in it. And we learn more about the person of Jesus Christ through these verses than pretty much all, a lot of other places in Scripture about who Jesus is and sort of the nature and character of God and, and, and the deity and humanity of Christ. And it demands to kind of be isolated apart from those things and really explored in terms of an incarnational, like God becoming flesh kind of way. But it also fits really handily in our place where we've been looking at Philippians 1 all the way through now, talking about perspective and the call of the church, and, and it demands to be looked at it from how the Philippians would have seen it. And so it's got both this big theological push to it, and it's also got this con- contextual push to it, and so I wrestled probably way too much with how to kind of think about it, and here's what I landed on. I'm going to take a look at it today from a little bit of a broader picture that fits more in context with really where we are and what kind of some overarching principles that Paul was, I think, pushing towards the Philippians. And, and, and my promise is, is that in a later date in the spring, we're going to come back to it and really dive into it for its theological depth when it comes to questions like, who is Jesus? And what does that mean to me? And we're going to look at some other things this spring that are going to tie into that well. But I want to keep our kind of train of thought going. So I'm not dumbing it down. I'm just choosing to use this sort of second picture um, of how we could do it. Because, I mean, really, if I were to say, today we're going to be talking about the nature of God in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is, you know, this is a whole series of classes we could teach on that. So we're going to not do that. We're going to do a little bit of it. 
And we're going to take a little bit broader picture. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to take a look at 5 through 11 with me. And then we're going to kind of dive into some themes here um, that we can unpack together. So your attitude, verse 5, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So you can see right away that this is a a very different piece of text. It's not really what Paul is writing specific instructions. You can tell that Paul is doing something very intentionally, but he's taken this hymn or this poem and he's inserted it into this text as kind of an example of, of something that he has been pointing out earlier. And there's a couple of things we need to do before we really look at these verses. And we've got to understand them in context. Because oftentimes we look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and we say, okay, we pull it out of chapter 2 and we say, this is what it means for me to have kind of the attitude or mind of Christ. And we isolate it. But really what's happening is that Paul is using verse 5 to connect 1 through 4 to this call of Christ. So you've got to remember, 1 through 4 were really Paul's call to unity in the church. We talked about it last week. If you have any encouragement, remember, from being united with Christ and any comfort in his love and any fellowship in the spirit, then make my joy complete, having one mind, one mind, being like-minded, having the same love, one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't look at your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, this is how you live this out. Last week we talked about unity. And not unity for the sake of, oh, we're all one and we hold hands and we sing kumbaya together and everybody just has this one robot mindset, but unity for the sake of the call of the church. That we are under the banner of the gospel. The church recognized its mission. And we realized that we came from all different backgrounds and walked of life, but we are under the banner of the gospel and we lived for that purpose as the church. We become effective. But when the pressure comes on and the church begins to think about itself, I've got to save mine, take care of mine, prevent this, we've got to get these kind of dollars to do this, or I want my program, my thing, then the church becomes divided in its mission and it becomes ineffective. And we talked about that call last week. And Paul's saying, so unity, you want to know what that looks like? Here's what it looks like, that you would have the attitude of Christ, the mindset of Jesus. So really verse 5 is tying 1 through 4 into this picture of 6 through 11. It's not just, okay, so Treb, here's what it means to have the attitude of Jesus. And every one of us walk around going, i got to think more like Jesus, i got to think more like Jesus. He's saying, no, listen, you want a picture of what this call of gospel unity looks like in the church? Here it is. It's the mindset of Christ. So the first thing we've got to understand about that is we've got to look backwards a little bit and see this in context. This isn't isolated. Paul's calling the church to something bigger, right? The second thing that it takes is it takes us taking a little bit of an inward look. Verse 5 is really interesting because... Our, the version that I'm reading from says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, which is a, a good interpretation, but more of a literal meaning, more of a literal translation of that Greek sentence would say something like this. Have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a big difference, all right? What we're trying to capture is this, is that, well, here, here let me put it this way. A lot of times we think that having the attitude or mindset of Christ means I've got to change something. 
So if I'm going to have the mindset of Christ, I'm going to have the attitude of Jesus, it already seems like an overwhelming task. I mean, I already lose, right? I mean, who can think like Jesus? I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, I, I think like me, and that is bad, and it is not good, and I'm selfish. Even when I try to be really not selfish, I am. So if I'm supposed to have the attitude of Christ, that is an undoable task, right? So no one can do that. What would Jesus do? Well, whatever I'm doing, he'd probably not be doing that. So it's easy to think, well, that's sort of undoable. What that verse actually is capturing is this. This attitude is yours in Christ. It's not something that we have to change or we have to do. If we really look at it, Paul's doing something very intentional, and it, so, and it kind of revolves around the single greatest Christian truth that there is, and that's this, that in Christ, you are a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells the church in Corinth this. He says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, as new has come. Meaning that when we have the Holy Spirit, when we give our lives to Christ, and the Holy Spirit literally comes and takes up residence in us, we are made completely and totally new. It is not our old way of life. It is not our old heart. We are absolutely, completely, 100% made new in Jesus Christ. Not only does that go with my new creation life, but that goes with my mind. My mind has been made new in Jesus Christ. I am no longer slave. You are no longer slave to your old way of sinful thinking and sinful life. But you have been made new. Jesus even kind of points this out himself when he's talking to Nicodemus in that sort of late night conversation. And, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says, hey, he's Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, listen, you've got to be born again. You have to be made new. As followers of Christ, when we surrender our hearts to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit literally comes in and makes us new. We call that regeneration. We have been regenerated, made absolutely new. And that goes for your mindset. What that means is this, and hang on to this because I know it's kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail. What that means is this. The attitude, the mindset of Christ is yours in Jesus because it's been made new in you. Now this is important because the first means this. If I have to have the attitude of Christ and I've got to work to it, it all revolves around my ability to try and do something, to change this, to think differently about this, to have a better attitude. But if I recognize that I've been made new in Christ and that promise of a new mind has been given to me, then it's all about what God has done for me and not what I can do for him. See, most of us will spend so much of our time chasing, trying to have a better attitude about things, about what I can do and how I can change this, and I will never get there. If we really look at this verse and Paul says, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, means recognize what God has done and begin to live into it. That's the promise of being a new, our minds have been made new, and it depends on what God has done and my ability to live in response to it. Now, it sounds like a subtle difference, but it's actually huge because the first one revolves around me and the second one revolves around God. I will never change my attitude enough. Paul doesn't even say that. He doesn't say, hey, change your attitude so that you can think a little bit more like Jesus. He says, no, have this attitude which is yours in Christ. We've got to hang on to that because it's going to change the way that we think about this. Because when we talk about words like humility and obedience, which we're going to get into in just a second, everything changes when it's something that we live into, when it's a response and not something that we have to do. It's a gift that we've been given, and it's a call to live into it and not find it. Most of us spend so much time trying to find a better attitude, a better mindset, a better way of thinking, and we will never get there. We're frustrated and angry that we're still selfish. When God says, I have given you a complete new life, I want you to just live into what my promise is for you in Christ. 
So what becomes the way that we do that? Or how do we begin to live into this kind of living response? Well, this is what Paul plays out. He plays out this picture of the life and deity of Christ, of humanity and deity all rolled into one that says, if you want to know what the unity of the church, if you want to know what having the right mind that has been given to you in Christ looks like, then look no further than the person of Christ, who being in very nature God, who being God himself, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, or really, translate better, he emptied himself out to be nothing. And not emptied himself of his deity, but emptied himself of sort of his heavenly status, that God broke into humanity through the incarnation, which is the single greatest moment in all of human history when heaven and earth collided. Because on the very nature of a servant, and that word servant is really the word doulos, which means bond servant, which actually means slave, right? Became on the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The picture that we first see is a picture of humility. And most of us think that humility just means not taking credit for something that we do. So I'm going to be humble about it, and I'm going to give a bunch of money away, but I'm not going to tell anybody I gave it away, and that way I can stay humble, right? Or I'm going to do something nice for my spouse, but I'm not going to tell them that I did it. That way I don't take credit for it, and I can be humble. So somehow, humility is attached to not getting credit for doing really nice things. And it's really a, a pretty flawed view when you try and apply that cultural view of humility to, the, to Scripture. Because it still revolves around our doing. I'll do this, and I'll kind of be happy about it, and that way God can kind of say, you know, hey, good job. And the reality is it's, it's just not accurate, and it's a mess. Humility, a real understanding of biblical humility is this, an understanding of who God is in relation to who you're not. So here we say, an understanding of biblical humility is really the picture of who God is and who you're not. God in all of majestic, mighty, magnificent wonder and grandeur. And me and my sinful, broken humanity. Those things don't even belong in the same sentence. God is in his infinite wonder and, and magnificence. And my understanding that I am just a mess. When I realize who I am in comparison to who God is, the only response I have is humility. It's not, God, I, I'm not going to take credit for, or I'm going to lay low, or I'm going to be feeble and all those things. It's just a recognition that I am nothing without Jesus. And the picture that Paul's painting here is that when we think about the church, when we think about the church's call and the church's role, it begins with an understanding that it's about what Christ did for you and what he did for me and what he did for us. Humility begins there. It doesn't begin with saying, well, I was a Pharisee in this sort of other life I ran around, so I get a little bit better place of prominence. Or I'm one of the bigger givers, or, or I was here from the beginning, and so you know, I can, I can just not take credit and kind of live in a way that says, ah, you know... It's nothing about that. It's about saying that I am an absolute mess and we all start at the same place. No matter what side of life, what side of the street, what side of the tracks you come from, we start in the same place. Broken, sinful messes compared to the greatness and grandeur of God. Humility begins there. Humility doesn't begin with not taking credit for something that you did. You did nothing. You can do nothing. The very fact that you are is because God is. Humility begins there. And it's the picture of Christ. That God, through his incredible, extravagant love for us, broke into humanity with all of his deity and all of his goodness and took on the very nature of a slave to the creation that he made. You think about that for a moment. That this is the God that breathed life into your lungs, that formed the earth, that created the heavens and made the trees, now walking in the form of humanity to be betrayed and beaten and crucified by the very creation that he made. This is the picture that Paul paints as the church's call 
to where humility begins. He moves on to this thread, which is really kind of the word that we talked about earlier about obedience, which is an interesting word because we always think that obedience means doing something too, you know, like, and we're always afraid because obedience is sort of that habitual thing that we have to do because God says it, so we begrudgingly do something because we know that if we do, it sort of earns God's favor. And we all think that obedience is going to lead us to some hut in Africa, right? That's what we're all afraid of. On some level, even though we can change what that hut looks like, the reality is that we're afraid that God, when we give our life to Christ, he is going to call us to the one thing that we cannot manage or want to do. That somehow when we give our life to Christ, we have to give away everything that we have and all of our dollars and move out of the three-bedroom house over in the village and, and move down onto the bridge. And this is how, what it means that God's going to call me to that. And I know it, and so I... I And when we finally give in, we give in begrudgingly like some kind of habitual moral to do. And so, God, I'm just going to be obedient. Even though I really don't want to, I'm going to do it because I should. I mean, what a lie that we've been fed in our little Christian circles about what obedience is. Just sort of suck it up and do it. It's not really the call of obedience at all. The call of obedience is a response the same way that humility is. It's the part of us that gets to say yes to God. It's the part of us that has the privilege of being able to say yes to the God who has given us even reason to breathe in the first place. We're so wrapped up in what obedience is going to cost us and not about where it leads us to. None of us want to be called to let go of the things that we love. And so we hold on to that thing. We hold on to those things. We hold on to that. We hold on to it. We hold on to it. Because we haven't thought correctly about what the word means. It's not about what we get to let go of. It's about what we get to walk into. So look at Jesus' picture of obedience. That he became like a servant, being found in appearance as a man, became obedient to what? To death, even death on a cross. I love that picture of Christ in the garden. The night that he's betrayed and handed over and about to be beaten and crucified. And, and all those events that sort of lead us to the crucifixion and resurrection. And Jesus has asked his friends to pray with him, and he, they've fallen asleep because they're just not into it. And he is weeping. And he says that he's, he's got literally so much stress that over this whole event that are about to transpire that he is sweating blood. And he says, God, if there's any other way, but not what I want ultimately, what you want. The picture that Paul paints for the church about obedience is one of privilege. It's one that gets to say, God, this is what Jesus did for me. That in the moment of all of his sort of humanity collided with his deity, and he chose to die for creation. Because God did that for me, I have the privilege to be able to say yes to him. And all that happens for what? For God's glory. Listen to this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow one day or another, will bow in heaven, earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To what? To the glory of God the Father. Everything for God's glory. Wrapping all this up to say this. If the church, Big C, will pay attention at this moment, If we as the church begin to think about and understand Paul's call to unity, not unity because we all get along and we all come from the same place and we all vote the same way, but unity in terms of our gospel mission, to see the nations come to know Christ, to live in an authentic way that reflects God's love, and we do it in a way that says, this is my redefinition of humility, my redefining of obedience. And I say, God, it's not about me. It's about what you did for me and how I can live as a response of worship to that, that humility is not about simply not taking credit. It's about saying, God, I deserve nothing, and you have given me everything.
And obedience isn't something we have to do because it's some kind of like moral cave-in that we do because all Christians should just be obedient to God. But it's an absolute privilege, not because of what I have to let go of or what I'm walking away from, but what you're leading me into. If the church began to live that way as our call, not individuals saying, this is the call of a bunch of individuals with the minds of Jesus that kind of hopefully line up for a greater good. But if our heartbeat together was to redefine our lives in a way that says humility and obedience look like this because of what Christ has done for us, and not church just in this building, but church big C in this community, in this city, we become a radical picture of God's glory. That becomes a call to the church, that through a redefined humility and a redefined obedience, we become a radical picture of God's glory for the world. It's not about you changing your mind to be a little bit more like Jesus. It's about the collective church turning its world upside down to think differently about how we live as worship. As we invite the band to come back up here and and close our time together, I really want to challenge you to think differently about saying, God, humility is not just about being, not taking credit for things, and obedience is not just saying yes to you when it's hard, but redefine things for me. God, change my understanding of what's mine and what's not mine. Change my understanding of what I can do and what I can't do. I can do none of it. I have nothing. It's all yours. When you have nothing and everything belongs to the Lord, obedience looks very different. When you can do nothing and have nothing to offer, humility looks very different. Let's ask God to reshape and redefine our thinking. Let's pray.